and stared at the ceiling, whether it's in the evening or in the morning, and you've wondered what your purpose in life was. Ever happened? If it hasn't, that's okay. It doesn't happen to me. Uh, because my stage of life, I fall into bed and fall asleep right away, and then I get up running, either because of my own stuff I have to do or because my kids have refused to stay in bed as long as they're supposed to. We actually have alarm clocks in our house in each of the kids' rooms, and that is not to wake up the kids. It is to release the kids. They can't get out of the room until the alarm clock goes off. Sometimes it works. Some people take time in their life to think about their life purpose. There are some life coaches out there that you can spend money to go to, and they'll tell you about all the things that are going wrong in your life. And one of the things they'll tell you is that you need to have a purpose for life. There's a website called betterup.com, which is all about life coach type stuff, and they write this. Your life purpose statement can ground you throughout every stage of your life. Having a life purpose statement is a way to filter out what you don't want in your life and focus on what you do want. And that way, in times of uncertainty and crisis, you'll have a way to stay grounded. If you're struggling to make a decision, you can look to your purpose statement as new opportunities or challenges come into your life, and you can react by deciding if your response aligns with your ultimate goals. And they have a list of life purpose statements that you could pick in there. They're interesting at best. One life purpose, they say, is travel around the world and explore different cultures. This is what you can build your life on, they say. They also could say, you know, supporting your community is a good life purpose. Finding a social cause like climate change is what they say. Being a positive, supportive person for your loved ones. Building a business that makes a difference to people's lives around the world. These are all purpose statements that they say people can build their lives on. And I think they're nice. But are these purpose statements really fulfilling? Are they really worthwhile? Calvary Bible Church has a purpose statement, if you will. We kind of have a tag phrase, Calvary Bible Church teaching to live the word of God. We're in the process of actually changing that tag phrase to be more in line with the, who we are as the body of Christ, what we're, what we're, this full scheme of what we're called to be and to do. Purpose statements. What do you think Paul's purpose statement was, if he had one. It's an interesting thought. Paul, earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, said, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I can't stand here and put words into Paul's mouth and say this was Paul's purpose statement, because he never said it was his quote-unquote life goal, life purpose, but it seems that Paul strove to cease every opportunity to disciple people to Jesus Christ. That seemed to be his life goal because he spent so much of his later life after salvation doing that. He made disciples. Discipleship is the process of teaching others about Jesus and leading those people to be like Jesus. A Christian disciple is one who puts Jesus first, obeys the Lord, produces good fruit, loves others, and makes more disciples. Truthfully, Paul's purpose statement, if we can say it's his purpose statement, should be ours. If we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we should have a goal to follow him and to influence others to follow him. Traveling the world is great. I love traveling. Every time I've left the country, I've loved it. But what is even better is seeing the world change 
through faith in Jesus Christ. Living this purpose statement of making disciples can seem rather daunting. It's not really cut and dry. There's so many different ways to do it, so many different things to do. Thankfully, in this last chapter of 1 Corinthians, Paul gives us three vignettes, three, three people that we can look at who gives us a broad picture of discipleship. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 is what we're in today. 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16, he says, After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and only make a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace, so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go, with you, go to you with the brothers. But he was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. It's, you know, the last chapter of Paul's letters. It's always you get to the point and he's this, this thought and this thought, this thought, and like, oh, what, before I forget this, and greet this person, this person greets you, and oh, I need to remember to tell you this, and all that. It's just this hodgepodge of stuff. But all of it is God's holy inspired word sent to teach us about something. Today, as we study this passage, we are going to look at the one who wanted to disciple, the one who is scared to disciple, and the one who wouldn't disciple. Before we jump in, will you pray with me? Father, thank you for sending us your word completely and truthfully, that we might know you, that we might know ourselves, and that we might know how to change to become more like you. Lord, teach us your ways that we might do that. Show us what the purposes and priorities of our life should be so that we can reflect you and so that the world around might know that you are our God and there is no one and nothing else that takes your place. Father, as I'm up here, I ask that I would decrease and that you would increase. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Thanks, Father. Amen. First, we're going to look at the one who wanted to disciple. We're going to have some fun this morning. I hope you don't mind. So, this side of the room, if you would, could you say this phrase? Thank you. Do it one more time. All right, good. So we have the one who wanted to disciple. In this passage, we see Paul's passion. We see how his passion is constantly torn between competing ideas. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he writes to them and says, hey, after I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I don't want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. Paul is not a traveling evangelist who comes in for one day or a week and then leaves, never come back again. He's not that traveling evangelist who bams the area with the word of God and then goes off and bams another area for the word of God. He wanted people to grow 
in following Christ. And he wanted to see these people grow. He wanted to passionately convince them that Jesus was worth completely 100% pursuit. He believed that Jesus loved us and he wanted people to know that truth. So Paul spent time in a community so people could get to know him, so they could see his personality, they could weigh his words and hear what he said and see that he was completely authentic and that he actually believed what he said. When he was in Corinth, he spent a year and a half there initially, and then he came back several times and spent quality time there with them. He's now at Ephesus, and he's going on two and a half years at Ephesus preaching the gospel. And he's staying there because he says, the work is effective. It's effective what's going on. I don't want to leave this work because some powerful things are going on. How does he know powerful things are going on? Because many people opposed him. Many people opposed him. Many of us would say, you know, there's opposition to the gospel here. It's making me feel not safe. Like there's some toxicity going on right now, and it it makes me sad. And so I'm going to remove myself for my own self-care. They pick up the stakes, try somewhere else. But Paul said, the truth I'm preaching must be landing because people are not liking what I'm saying. Therefore, I'm going to stay and press in to that opposition. I remember talking with a former pastor of mine who told me that he knew when a counseling session worked really well was when that person got really mad and stormed off. And there was one person, he said, that he knew it really landed because that guy stormed off, jumped in the car, drove to that guy's house, his own, his own house, and he wrecked his garage, completely demolished it. A couple weeks later, the guy came to him and said, you know, pastor, what you said was right. And he repented right then and there. It, it, people don't like the truth, and it rubs them wrong, and they get mad but that's when you know that something's happening. Something's happening. Paul wanted to invest in people's lives. And he said there's an open door for ministry here in Ephesus. And there's people's lives who are on the brick of changing. I cannot leave right now. I have to stay. I want to stay. But just as much as he wanted to stay in Ephesus, oh, he really wanted to go to Corinth. He really did. I, wanted, I need to stay in Ephesus. I want to go to Corinth. Paul wasn't this fly-by-night evangelist. After spending years in an area, he would go back and visit all the churches he founded. There's some pastors I know that say, oh, when I leave a church, I can never go back there again because I don't want to mess up the ministry that's happening. Like, no, you've invested in people's lives. Come back, reinvest. That's what Paul did. He did it to encourage faith, to provoke the church to growth and good works. And he wanted in that visit, whenever he did, have some long, good, quality time. He said when he came to Corinth, he wanted to spend even the winter there. And winter in the Mediterranean is about three months. That's it. Winter here, we say, I want to spend the winter. It might go on nine months. Here, Mediterranean, three months. And on the way, he's going to go through Macedonia, spend time with the churches there, and he upstart. Paul looked at his life, and he said, how can I encourage people to follow Jesus? How can I do it? Where I'm at right now, how can I encourage people to follow Jesus? Next month, what I'm looking towards, how can I, what is my dream there to encourage people to follow Jesus? At the end of his life, Paul would describe himself to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6, for I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, 
and the time for my departure is near. Paul says his whole life is, is a pouring out of worship to the Lord through everything he did that people might know Jesus, and he poured it out till he was completely empty. He gave himself completely to the work of the Lord. Our lives have so many poles to them. Several weeks ago, I talked about this, the poles in our life that we get pulled here and we get pulled there and we fill our lives with priorities and purposes that will not last, that are in the grand scheme of things worthless. But on the flip side, we could fill our life with so many things that do last. If we look at the week that's ahead of us, there's so many things that we could fill our lives with to disciple people, to encourage people to follow Jesus. We could think of ministries at the church that we could take part of, ministries that need volunteers. We could think of ministries that are current ministries going on. We could think of ministries that need to be started but aren't yet because people aren't wanting to do it yet and they're doing other stuff. But not only is there things in the church that we can think of, of ways that people can say, I, I want to disciple people to follow Jesus, but we can look at things in the community, uh, opportunities in the community of people taking part in food pantries. And I'm grateful for everyone from our church that goes on that third Tuesday of the month to the Legion to help pass out food. We're, we're slowly starting to take over that ministry, which is awesome. Keep doing it. We, there's food pantries. There's nonprofit boards we could take part of, to say, hey, I want to be a light in the community in this little niche. We could be part of mentoring programs like teammates at the high school. We could be part of substitute teaching. We could do community meal opportunities, fundraisers, or just going and giving our money to places in the community to say, hey, this is a gift of Jesus to you. So many opportunities, so many opportunities to interact with people so we can share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there should be a desire for us We shouldn't just want to sit up in our room, in our easy chair, in front of our TV and say, our life is just fine right here. But we should have a desire to say, I want to do that, and I want to do that, and I want to do that, and I don't know how it's going to be done by the the Lord permits, it will. My desire is to disciple Paul, the one who wanted to disciple. What was your phrase that you were supposed to say? See, I'm kind. I give you a cheater. Let's do it. Now, we could look at Paul, and sometimes I do, with a mixture of respect and disgust. Because truthfully, he makes everyone look bad. He does. You look at his life, you look at his letters, and you say, how can one man do all of that? He just keeps going and going and going and going, never backing down, no matter the opposition. He wasn't a passionate speaker. We know that about that, but he didn't care. He said, yeah, I'm not a good speaker, but I'm still going to talk because this is the passion God has given me. He's a bulldog for the truth. Few people are Paul's. Paul truly wanted people to know Jesus, and he gave his life completely for that. And we could look at Paul and say, that's fine, that's Paul, but that's not me. I'm not Paul. I don't have his personality. I don't have his giftings. I'm a fearful, timid guy. I'd rather sit in my nice little easy chair watching TV and, 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 because that's just easier. Enter Timothy, the one who is scared to disciple. The one who is scared to disciple. Okay, this side, what were you going to say? All right, thank you, Paul. Go sit in your corner. 
this side, this is what you're going to say. Please. Thank you. Timothy. Timothy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, when Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you, for he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Timothy was a strong Christian. He was. His mother was a faithful Jew, we can read in Acts 16, who taught Timothy about God. His dad was a pagan Greek who didn't care about religion and didn't want his son raised in religion. Timothy was then taught by his mom and his grandmother about Jesus. He hears about Jesus, turns from the religion of works of the Jewish faith, turns from the pagan polytheism of his dad's family, and embraces a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He was a solid Christian. He turned to Jesus and said, it's not because of the good works I've done, but because of you alone, and I trust. And he was saved. He was a solid Christian. The Christians in the towns around him spoke very well of him, as we read in Acts 16. And then Paul takes him along on his missionary journey, strengthening his faith, teaching him about Jesus, discipling him, because we know that's what Paul does. Everyone he's around, he's pressing them towards Jesus. Paul comes to rely on Timothy, calling him his dear son, as we see in 2 Timothy chapter 1. He's going to write to Timothy later on in chapter 1. He's going to say, I thank God who I may serve, as my ancestors did with a clear conscience, as night and day constantly remember you in my prayers, recalling your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Paul and Timothy have this very special bond. Paul has poured theology and teaching into Timothy. Timothy knows a bunch of stuff. He's a solid Christian, but Timothy wasn't perfect because Timothy was scared. Timothy was timid. Paul would write to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1 later on. He says, for the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Timothy was scared. He was fearful. He battled with that in his own personality. He wasn't bold, Paul. He was, I know what is true. Yes, I do, but, but I'm Picture the scene. Timothy is traveling to Corinth. He knows that the Corinthians are mad at Paul. Paul has called the Corinthians out on some pretty serious sin in their midst. Paul has strongly corrected them about bad theology that they've been believing. Paul has demanded some radical changes in the Corinthian church, and some of the Corinthians are so mad that they're pointing their finger at Paul and spreading the word to all the other churches around that Paul actually isn't a true apostle, but is a false teacher and should not be listened to. That's what's going on. And Timothy is going straight into this bee's nest. Timothy is Paul's prodigy. Timothy is Paul's mini-me. Wherever Timothy went, people were reminded of Paul. He was like Paul's figurehead. Wherever Timothy went, he was charged with reminding people about what Paul wrote and say, yes, that is actually a letter from Paul, and yes, it is actually true, and you need to change your lives to live by it. So, Timothy is traveling to Corinth. 
He's going along, and when he gets to Corinth, how is this church going to embrace him when he stands up in front of them? Are they going to say, yay, Timothy, so glad you're here, and they come, and they greet him with a shake of the hand and a hug, and, and they throw a big fellowship meal and a potluck, and everyone's happy and joyful. Is that what's going to happen in Corinth? No. No, it's not, which is why Paul had to write, he had to say, so see to it that he has nothing to fear while he's with you. And, and no one then should treat him with contempt because he knows what the Corinthians are going to do. And he knows that if they, he writes this, they probably still won't do it. Timothy is going to this hotbed of controversy. Knowing Timothy's character, I bet he was dragging his feet all the way from Ephesus to Corinth or dragging his sails as it might be because the quickest way is actually by boat, not by land. And as he is on this boat going from Ephesus to Corinth, I wonder if he's remembering Jonah and saying, you know, I really don't want to go there, but I remember what happened to Jonah, and I don't want to be spoiled by a great fish, so I guess I need to go. We don't know what was on Timothy's mind. What we do know is that he went. He went. He went to the Corinthians to push them to follow Jesus in spite of how he felt, in spite of his fear, in spite of his timidity, he said, this is something that must be done. I'm going to do it. There are plenty of times when we have opportunities to tell someone about Jesus. We have opportunities to encourage a believer in their faith. We have opportunities to come to a believer who is believing bad doctrine or living in a wrongful way. And we freeze up and we step back and say, someone else, someone else can do it. Because we're living off of fear. Instead of saying, God has given me this opportunity, and yes, Father, I am scared, stinking stiff to do this. And the face of the opportunity we wrestle in ourselves, we kick some dirt, we slap a wall, and we step up and we say, this is what I'm going to do. But God has called me to do it. He has called me to disciple people. He's placed this person in my lap. I am going to step into it and follow the Lord. That's what we're called to do. Paul wrote to the Philippians, no, he wrote to Timothy a very fascinating thing. He said, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy appointing me to his service. It is an amazing privilege to serve God. Even in circumstances that make us afraid, it is an amazing privilege and God gives us the strength to do it. So, we have the one who wanted to be the disciple. And what did he say? We have the one who is scared stiff to be a disciple. And he said, let's do that again. This side says, and this side said, thank you. Finally, we have the one who wouldn't disciple. The one who wouldn't. I, and I probably shouldn't have said it that strongly, but I wanted to. Everyone can say this. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Let's talk about Apollos. The text says this 
in Apollos chapter 16, verse 12. Now about Apollos, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 12. Now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go with you, to you with the brothers. He was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. As a reminder, Apollos was a disciple of John living in Ephesus. We read about him in Acts chapter 18. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. Fascinating guy. Priscilla and Aquila meet up with him, uh, and they had lived briefly in Corinth, and they're now traveling with Paul, and they find Apollos in Ephesus, and they teach him more fully about Jesus, more fully what salvation by grace through faith really means. And Apollos is sold. He jumps on this message, says, yes, this is what I believe, and I want to tell the world about it because I have this gift to speak passionately. And he goes around, believers encourage him to travel, and he goes to Corinth, and he preaches there. Does a great job. Paul has already planted the church in Corinth. Now Paul's coming through to, to train the, the church more on the gifting, and he speaks passionately, unlike Paul, and immediately the church in Corinth splits. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean to say is, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. And another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. They, they split between, hey, I want to follow this one's teaching, and I want to follow this one's teaching, and I'm the super spiritual one. I'm, I'm not following anyone's teaching. I'm only following Christ. And Paul writes to them and says they shouldn't be splitting into factions. They should be united on the gospel. He says this in 1 Corinthians 3. What, after all, is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. Apollos then leaves the Corinthian church after he has uh, spent some time there, returns back to Ephesus where Paul is preaching. They join forces. They become fellow servants of God, fellow ministers, co-workers for the gospel there in Ephesus, the place where there's this great effective door for the gospel that is open and there's much opposition. The Corinthians, though, hear that Paul is spending all of his time in Ephesus, and they say, but we want Apollos back. We really like his teaching. He does a great job. He's much better than the pastor we have right now. Pastor, can you go on sabbatical again? We want this other guy. So they write a letter to Paul. And Paul, because he cares more about the gospel than in his own, his own reputation, urges Apollos to come and preach at Corinth. He says, I strongly urged Apollos to go, and Apollos was quite unwilling to go. Did you ever watch Sesame Street when either you were a kid or your kids were kids and you were the parent and you pretended not to watch Sesame Street, but you did while they were watching? There's a song that they would sing from time to time that I want to do a clip, but I, I decide not to do a clip. But it's one of these things is not like the other. One of these things is not the same. And they would have this little thing and all these things, and one thing was different, and the kid had to pick which one was different. Really cute, loved it. I would, I'm not going to do it. This is what is happening in the passage, I feel. Paul is yearning to disciple people. He's yearning to, and he's pulled in all these different ways, saying, I want to disciple you, and I want to disciple you, and I want to disciple you, I want to disciple everyone. And Timothy is like, I need to disciple you, and I need to disciple you, and I need to disciple you, and I'm going to do it. I will do it, I will do it, I will do it, I will do it, I will do it. 
So this side was supposed to say what? And this side was supposed to say? Thank you. And then you have Apollos, who's presented with an opportunity to disciple. And he refuses. He refuses. He says, I will do it when I have the opportunity to do it. But that phrase just drips with unwillingness. I I, I don't want to put things into his mouth, but it just rubs me wrong. But why? Why did Paul refuse, Apollos refuse? Why did he do it? It could be because of the same reason that Paul gave. The work in Ephesus is all-consuming, great big door. Oh, I didn't want that one yet. Sorry. All-consuming. He was loath to leave the work that was going on in Ephesus. That's a possibility. I tend to agree with Gordon Fee, which is this quote that I was going to put up. He says, this refusal probably says as much about Apollos' own character as it does about Paul's and asking him in the first place. Most likely, he would have turned it down precisely because with Paul, he resisted any implication that either of them was party to the internal strife being carried on in the church in their names. Apollos didn't want to feed the fires of division in Corinth and said, hey, if I go there, you're just going to split some more, and I don't want that to happen. We don't know why Apollos refused to go to Corinth. We don't know. Text doesn't tell us. We can say it might be this. We can say it might be that. We can say it might be, we don't know. These are plausible ideas. But Apollos reminds us that even if there is an opportunity to serve God, that does not necessarily mean that we should be the one taking that opportunity. Can I be transparent with you a little bit? Yes. Okay. As a pastor, I'm presented with lots of opportunities to minister. A lot of opportunities to disciple. Presented with opportunities in the church. I'm presented with opportunities in the community. And it's very, 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 very tempting to take all of them. My, one of the favorite things I love to say is, yes. It's a very easy word to say. How about you say it? Yes. Oh, thank you very much. I've got a list of things for you. <laughs> Sometimes I want to say yes to everything. And earlier this year, I said yes about pretty much everything. I did which one of the reasons why I got really, really, really tired, and then I took a sabbatical, and I rested, and it was great. But it wore me down, and I had a harder time balancing family ministry, and church ministry, and community ministry, and it was a constant juggle. And during that time of this constant juggle, I didn't do a very good job of one of the main purposes of a pastor that Paul writes about in First Timothy, not First, in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. I was so busy doing that I didn't have a lot of time to train and pass things off to people. I should have said no more often. I liked this picture. It was like, boom, right in your face, No. There have been some opportunities recently that people have approached me with that I've needed to say no to them, and I had, and it was hard, because it was opportunities of ministries that need to happen. But as I sat there and listened and prayed about it, I realized I was not the right person for that ministry. God has called me to a specific ministry to train up his church to do the works of ministry. He's other ministries too in the community that I'm part of. And I'm praying for people to stand up and take the baton 
of the needs that I have refused. And I'm not going to give you a list here, and that's not the place to tell you. If God has placed on your burden on your heart saying, I, there's something that I need to do, and I'm not sure what it is, come and see me. My door is always open. If it's locked, send me a text. I'll make sure we can, I want to, okay. God has called each of us to join the work of discipleship. There will be some times when we need to say no to one opportunity so we can focus on the other. Paul said, I want to go to you, Corinth, but I can't right now. i got to do this. It's the same type of thing. Apollo said, yeah, that's a ministry that needs to happen, but I'm not the one right now because I don't want to split the church. More often than not, though, to our shame, and I'm concluded in this, when we say no to a ministry, it's not because we are all consumed with the current ministry, but it's because we're scared to take this one on and say, I can't do it. It makes me uncomfortable. It pushes me outside of my comfort zone. And we need to step up and imitate Paul and Timothy in those times and say, I will do it. In this passage, we see the three travelers. We see the one who wanted to disciple. We see the one who was scared to disciple. And we see the one who wouldn't disciple. Where do you fit? sitting in your chairs today, where do you fit? Are you one of these? Or you're on this, not on this list at all because you've not stepped up to disciple people around you? Are you living according to the purpose that God has placed in your life? Or do you need to refocus? Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for being the God who chooses to allow us to be yours, to allow us to step into your team of ministers. Lord, it is truly privilege to know that you are using us to advance your kingdom around the world through all these different, Lord, it's neat to see the, the shoeboxes that are going and that we get to be part of that. It's neat to see the ministries here in, in Neely that we're part of, Lord, it's such a great thing. Forgive us for when we, when we are too concerned about our own priorities and passions, when we're too concerned about our emotions and our fear to step up and say, I will do what you've called me to do. Lord, give us the background to do it. This week, Father, I ask that you would blaringly Show us areas in our life that we need to step into a discipleship role and we need to say no to things that have nothing to do with you and fill our lives with your service. And Father, in those moments, help us to make those decisions and Lord, bless us by giving us joy and sweetness in those times that we're finally stepping into what truly gives purpose and fulfillment for your honor and your glory. Thanks, Father. Amen. Let's take our hymnals and stand and turn to number 234.